It's a high-stakes election year, so it's not enough to just follow along. You need to understand what's happening so you are fully informed come November. Every weekday on the NPR Politics Podcast, our political reporters break down important stories and backstories from the campaign trail so you understand why it matters to you. Listen to the NPR Politics Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Canada has lost one of its elder statesmen. Ed Broadbent, former leader of the federal New Democratic Party, was part of some of the biggest moments in Canadian political history. He was a lifelong champion of social democracy, of working people, of making life better for ordinary Canadians, and he was often called the best prime minister this country never had. Ed Broadbent died yesterday. He was 87. I had the chance to speak with Ed Broadbent about his legacy just two months ago. It was his last national broadcast interview, and he just released his book, Seeking Social Democracy, Seven Decades in the Fight for Equality. Here is my conversation with Ed Broadbent. You say in your book that you discovered early on that pleasure and socialism were not contradictions. So did you manage to have fun in politics? I did indeed. Mostly off-camera, though. Politicians, I think, appropriately try to risk being funny in, po- in public. It usually backfires. So your, your humorous, uh, pleasurable, fun-filled time is normally off-camera with staff. And I, I did a lot of that with my own staff. That was uh, a way of maintaining sanity is to kid around a bit. Let me ask you about... Oshawa, Ontario. You are from that town, automaking town, longtime union stronghold, home of General Motors, known as known as the Motors in in Oshawa. And your family was involved in the union movement there. How did that growing up there? How did that shape who you who you are today? No, it was fundamental. I I saw what it meant to to live in a town that was highly unionized. You could see the benefits all around you, day day in and day out, and the highlight of the the calendar year was the then UAW subsequent CAW picnic, a great gathering of all all the families of workers, in which they gave away two or three cars to employees. I grew up knowing that collective action, if you like, the benefits that uh, the workers had didn't come because there was a benevolent General Motors that said, "We'll just give these away." As the recent negotiations have revealed, there's a real power struggle that goes on. And the union does represent the workers. And in the case of Oshawa, it provided absolutely wonderful benefits for, oh, three or four decades anyway. What was it about the idea of and the ideals of democratic socialism that you found attractive at that time? Well, the, the, the ideal is to build a society in which everyone has the possibility of living a life of dignity, but more than dignity, excitement and joy in their lives as well. It takes you willy-nilly in the direction of, well, if you believe that's desirable for everyone, what kind of political institutions do you have to make that possible? And for me, they are social democratic to the core. You provide benefits like home care, national pensions, health care, as citizens' rights so that uh, the ordinary men and women don't have to struggle, you know, for higher income all the time to get those. They, they, they become your rights of citizenship. So that, that's a key element of equalizing conditions. 
because the market is inherently unequal. So social democracy comes in and says, well, we have to equalize conditions, and that's one way of doing it. We provide those benefits. We take them out of the market and say, hi, everyone is a citizen, works hard, you contribute your labor, and you get, in return, these collective rights. And that, that that's made a big difference. And, and without unions in Canada, as in Western Europe, social democracy would never really have emerged. Do you still consider yourself a socialist? Yes. One of the things you write about in the book is that in the NDP is, in many ways, two different things at the same time. It's a party that wants to get elected, but it's also a movement. And in that, inherently, there's got to be tension between the two. Which one wins out, do you think? Well, it, it depends on the issue. Take the War Measures Act. Mm-hmm. There's immense pressure on all my colleagues at that time to support the War Measures Act. But we didn't. Uh, Tommy Douglas, our very important, remarkable leader, went and met privately with then Prime Minister Trudeau and said, "What? What are your, what's your evidence for an insurrection going on? And he didn't provide any new evidence whatsoever. So when, when Tommy came back to the caucus, we made probably the most unpopular political decision in, in my life, that is to say, to oppose the War Measures Act is an infringement of liberties, but it turned out we were right. So, so there was a, you know, a real tension before the vote. Do we vote with our conscience to vote against the application of the War Measures Act, or do we take the expedient popular role? And we took the, the conscience role, and that happened two or three times, but more often than not, it's no great tension about voting for your conscience over pragmatism. Uh, But occasionally it comes up, and if the party's worth anything, it's got to be prepared to take a stand. If not, it should just fold itself into another party and struggle from within them. You pressured the government to replace the War Measures Act with the Emergencies Act. Why why was that important to you? I believed, and it turned out, other parliamentarians believed after the experience of the War Measures Act, we needed an act that had more provision, protective provisions, and we got that. And when we had that invoked by Trudeau the Younger, if mm. I can put it that way, in recent history, it, it first of all it applied just in the limited regions of the country. Um, secondly, there was a very important reporting back mechanism that the government had to justify its acts through an independent inquiry after and so on. So there was a big improvement in the act that that was subsequently used by Trudeau's son. Uh, So that that was a necessary change that came out of the original War Measures Act. What did you make of the use of the Emergencies Act as protests rolled across this country. There are people, there are many people in, in this country who still say that that was an example of, of government overreach and worse, and, and that the fissures in society have in some ways grown in the wake of the use of that act. What did you make of the use of the Emergencies Act? I, I supported it. I, I, no doubt it was a difficult, thoughtful process that Mr. Trudeau went through, uh, but I, I was in Ottawa, during the, the horrible days of the convoy, and I live right near the center of the city, 
and you could hear this astronomical banging of pots and pans or whatever they used to make noise day in and day out, needlessly in this case. And there was, of course, in Alberta, a convoy. At Coots. Uh, yes, at Coots. And again, in violation of any reasonable norm of civil liberty. So I, I supported the action of Mr. Trudeau and the present government. I think I'm balanced. They did the right thing. And the inquiry after found the same thing. You were also deeply involved in designing the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And one of the things that people think about now when it comes to the Charter is the notwithstanding clause. What was the thinking behind the inclusion of that clause? Well, it was necessary at the time. I was intimately involved in negotiations with Pierre Trudeau and the content of the Charter. Those of us who believed most seriously in the need for the Charter were, I think, without exception at the time, opposed to the notwithstanding clause. But it was a, a necessary uh, change in the constitutional package if it was going to be accepted by a majority of the premiers. And finally, I came around to it as, as to Trudeau, that if we were going to get all the good things out of the Charter, this the notwithstanding clause... Uh, was going to be something we had to accept uh, politically. And that was done and became part of the package and, and passed as part of the constitutional arrangements. What do you make of how it's being used now? You have Saskatchewan using it in relation to parental consent regarding a, a child's gender identity. You have other provinces, Ontario, certainly Quebec, New Brunswick, others that have looked at it as well. What do you make of how that clause reluctantly included... Um, is being used today. I'm very real concerns about it. What concern? What concerns you the most about it? Well, the Saskatchewan example is one of using it to, to deny and affect uh, children's rights. Premier Mo of Saskatchewan, he's abusing the situation because he, I'm sure he believes it's it's right. But m most of us concerned with civil liberties, I think, would take the view that it's not been used appropriately. It's a high-stakes election year, so it's not enough to just follow along. You need to understand what's happening so you are fully informed come November. Every weekday on the NPR Politics Podcast, our political reporters break down important stories and backstories from the campaign trail so you understand why it matters to you. Listen to the NPR Politics Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Let me ask you about one final issue that you've been deeply involved in. One of the final acts that you had um, in elected office was committing the federal government to eliminating child poverty by the year 2000. Obviously, that didn't happen. Why do you think that is? Why is this such an issue that is so stubborn to, to address in a, in a truly meaningful way in this country? Children don't vote. Mm. And, and if they had the pressure there, as voters do in parts of the country, we've seen already in terms of program to deal with the environmental crisis the Liberals have backtracked. Oh, when it comes to the price on carbon? Yes. Just in the last few days? And the reason was that they lost, in a precipitous fashion, support in Atlantic Canada. Mm. So they, those votes matter in, the, in democracy. It's, it's terrible that children should be going, and our country should be going to bed hungry, getting up hungry, going to school hungry. 
But I repeat, I think if, if kids could vote, the situation would be different. You say in your book that liberals run on the left and rule from the right. Does that include, from your perspective, the current Trudeau government? Well, to some extent, yes. Uh, the issue we've just uh, talked about, carbon pricing, that came under intense political pressure in Atlantic Canada over the summer. So what did they do? Did they stand by their agenda and maintain the coherent policy across the country? No. And they've got themselves and, in, to some extent, the country in the real mess as a consequence. Do you support the supply and confidence agreement between Justin Trudeau and the NDP? Yes, I did. Jagmeet Singh used his political muscle to the extent possible for benefits to the people of Canada, notably the Pharmacare and Dedicare, which, because of the pressure of the NDP, Jagmeet Singh in particular, the Liberals have reluctantly agreed to do that. Um, what, so what, I, what is it given the NDP? Because there are people who will say that in propping up this Liberal government and allowing that government to, and the, 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 these are criticisms from the NDP itself, allowing the Liberal government to take credit for some of those moves, the NDP is, has, has sold itself in some ways to the Liberals. What does the NDP, do you think, get out of this kind of agreement? Well, it gets out of it what it wants to do. If, as a result of this agreement, this comes to families and children in particular across the country, to the millions who can't afford either dental care or, or pharmacare, then the, the NDP has fought the good fight for, and got a good result from it. Does that open the door to a more formal alliance between the NDP and the Liberals? People have mused about this for decades as a way to not split the left-of-center vote. If you see that success in an arrangement like this, why not just bring the parties together? Because you use all efficacy in doing so. Uh, Trudeau Sr. once said to me he liked having the NDP presence in Parliament because he could use our presence as an effective mechanism to persuade the right wing in his own party to do the right thing socially, or they would lose out support to the NDP and lose their government. So for the NDP to be effective, for example, as a conscience of Parliament, it has to come to forward as a political threat. If it doesn't constitute a political threat, I, I say with great conviction, if it doesn't threaten the, the established political order, it won't have an impact. If we just went in with the liberals mm. and got absorbed by them, then the efficacy of independent voting strength in the House would disappear. And, and before long, we'd just be absorbed in one big liberal, well, I don't know what. <laughs> but it, it, it would not be good for the people of Canada when it comes to social policy. You're in Vancouver. I mean, do you see the NDP government there or the newly elected NDP government in Manitoba as in many ways the, the present incarnation, the future incarnation of that party? Absolutely. I mean, we look at the, the most recent election in Manitoba. It literally brought tears to my eyes uh, to see Bob Canoe form the government. All those uh, indigenous people that were brought right in, and not only the political system, but right to the top in the cabinet. Three young women 
indigenous women who are cabinet ministers, never before in Manitoba, um, never before in Canada. So the the party in, in its different regions elements is doing well. Let me ask you about the other side of the ledger. You ran against progressive conservative leaders in Joe Clark and Brian Mulroney. How are they different from the current conservative leader, Pierre Polyev? Oh, well, they have a much more cohesive view of, of society. You know, yes, there were conservative a number of financial policies, but they had a view of Canada and the community that, that is holistic. What do, you, that, what do you mean by that, a cohesive, holistic view of, of the country? Well, I, I mean you don't have a policy that is deliberately designed to divide in order to win votes. And it's it's very important, I believe, to maintain the society that way, uh, or we'll get into the terrible politics of the country south of us. I, I wish that the Conservative Party would get back back into the Joe Clark Brian Mulroney mode, if you like, to take on policies that see Canada as a whole and not try to divide as the way the current conservative leader does. Um, when, you, when you hear the leader of the Conservative Party, for example, say that Canada is broken, what do you think? Well, I, I think it's exaggerated rhetoric. For example, his attacks on the prime minister are, are one level just ludicrous because they're so exaggerated. But when politics is personalized the way he did this and has done that about the prime minister. That is what can lead to deeper divisions that go beyond the existing prime minister. There has to be a serious attempt in politics to keep the personality out of the criticism, make the policy the object of criticism. When you left politics, one of the things, people will remember this, that you left in part to care for your your late wife, who had been diagnosed with cancer, and, and that this was a personal decision for you that you needed to, to leave this thing that had been such a huge part of your life because this other part of your life demanded your attention, demanded your, your, your time and your presence there. There's a huge personal cost to personal life and, and public life kind of coming together. Do you think that there's still an appeal for people to go into public life? Oh, yes. Yes, I do. You know, the unpleasantness uh, of, of public life, as it is in many respects right now, is, is old as democracy. If you look at the debates in, in 19th century Canada between the, the political parties and the leaders then, they were every bit as bad as they have been recently. So there, there's a cycle where... There's a greater degree of civility at one time, and then it will fade and then, and then come back. So I'm, I remain optimistic because I've seen past history where the democratic impulse in Canada has, has been very good. And part of that impulse is to respect the dignity of your opponents. So I, I fully expect that to return and fully expect the continuing embrace of a political life by many Canadians. Is that optimism hard to find? Sometimes I think of, of, of that letter that 
Jack Layton wrote to Canadians um, when he died, and he talked about optimism being better than despair, um, that love is better than anger. But there's a lot of anger that's out there right now. There's a lot of despair as well. And I just wonder, for, from your perspective, whether that optimism is hard to find. Yes, it's, it's difficult, but it's quite possible. I mean, that's why I, I come back to policy options uh, that are necessary of a social democratic nature in Canada. We need that. And if the families are continually pressed for pennies, as they are increasingly now, that's not good for democracy. So we need more social and economic rights to lay the foundation for more liberty for more people. And that's what we should be struggling for. Ed Broadbent, the former federal leader of the NDP, died yesterday. He was 87 years old, a remarkable figure in this country. And our best wishes to his friends and family. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.